If you enjoyed these podcasts, check out Byron Reese's newest book. It's about artificial intelligence and covers all the topics addressed on Voices in AI. It's called The Fourth Age, Smart Robots, Conscious Computers, and the Future of Humanity. And it's available now wherever fine books are sold. This is Voices in AI brought to you by GigaOM. I'm Byron Reese. And today our guest is Louis Rosenberg. He is the CEO at Unanimous AI. He holds a BS in engineering, an MS in engineering, and a PhD in engineering, all from Stanford. Welcome to the show, Louis. Yeah, thanks for having me. So tell me a little bit about uh, what is, why do you have a company? Why are you the CEO of a company called Unanimous AI? What is the unanimous aspect of it? Sure. So what we do at Unanimous AI is we use artificial intelligence to amplify the intelligence of groups rather than using AI to to replace people. And so instead of replacing human intelligence, we are amplifying human intelligence by connecting people together using AI algorithms. So in in layman's terms, you would say we we build hive minds. In, In scientific terms, we would say we, we build artificial swarm intelligence by connecting people together into systems. What is swarm intelligence? So swarm intelligence is a, uh, a biological phenomena that uh, people have been studying or biologists have been studying since the 1950s. And it is, uh, it is basically the reason why birds flock and fish school and bees swarm, they are smarter together than they would be on their own. And, uh, and the way they become smarter together is not the way people do it. They don't, take a, they don't take polls, they don't conduct surveys, they don't, uh, there's no survey monkey in nature. The way that, that groups of organisms get smarter together is by forming systems, re- real-time systems with feedback loops so that they can essentially think together as an emergent intelligence that is smarter as a uniform system than the individual participants would be on their own. Uh, And so the way I like to think of uh, uh, an artificial swarm intelligence or or a hive mind is as a brain of brains. And and that's essentially what, what we focus on at Unanimous AI is figuring out how to do that among people, even though nature has figured out how to do that among birds and bees and fish and have demonstrated you know, over millions of years and hundreds of millions of years uh, how powerful it can be. So before we talk about artificial swarm intelligence, let's just spend a little time um, really trying to understand what it is that uh, the animals are doing. So the thesis is, you know, your average ant isn't very smart. And even the smartest ant isn't very smart. And yet, collectively, they exhibit behaviors. It's quite intelligent. They can do all kinds of things and, you know, forage and do this and that and build a home and protect themselves from a flood and and all of that. So how does that happen? Yeah, so it's a it's a it's an amazing process, and it's it's worth taking one little step back and just asking ourselves, you know, how do we define the term intelligence, and then we can talk about how uh, how we can build a swarm intelligence. And so, in my mind, the word intelligence 
to be defined as a system that takes in noisy input about the world and it processes that input and it uses it to make decisions, to have opinions, to solve problems. And, and ideally it does it creatively and by learning over time. And so if, if that's intelligence, then there's, um, there's lots of ways we can think about building an artificial intelligence, which, which I would say is, uh, is basically creating a, a system that involves technology that does some or all of these systems, takes in noisy input and uses it to make decisions, have opinions, solve problems, and does it creatively and learning over time. Now, uh, in, in nature, there's really been two paths by which nature has figured out how to, how to do these things, how to create intelligence. One path is the path we're very, very familiar with, which is by building up systems of neurons. And so over, over hundreds of millions and billions of years, nature figured out that if you, if you build these systems of neurons, which we call brains, you can take in information about the world and, uh, and you can use it to make decisions and have opinions and solve problems and do it creatively and, and learn over time. Uh, but what nature has, has also shown is that in many organisms, particularly social organisms, once they've built that brain and they have an individual organism that can do this on their own, uh, many social organisms then evolve the ability to connect the brains together into systems. So if a brain is a, a network of neurons where intelligence emerges, a swarm in nature is a network of brains that, that, are, connected, uh, that are connected deeply enough that a, a superintelligence emerges. And, and by superintelligence, we mean that the brain of brains is smarter together than those individual brains would be on their own. And, and as, you, as you described, it happens in ants, it happens in bees, happens in, in birds and fish. And uh, let me talk about bees because that happens to be the type of uh, swarm intelligence that's been studied the longest in nature. And so if you think about the evolution of bees, uh, they, they first developed their individual brains, which allowed them to process information. Uh, but at some point, their brains could not get any larger, uh, presumably because they fly. And, uh, and so bees fly around, their, their brains are very tiny to be able to allow them to do that. In fact, uh, a honeybee has a brain that has less than a million neurons in it, and it's smaller than a grain of sand. And I know a million neurons sounds like a lot, but a human has 85 billion neurons. So however smart you are, divide that by 85,000, and that's a honeybee. So a single honeybee, very, very simple organism. And yet they have very difficult problems that they need to solve, just like humans have difficult problems. And so uh, the, the type of problem that is actually the most, been studied the most in honeybees is picking a new home to move into. And so it, uh, and by a new home, I mean, you have a colony of you know, 10,000 bees and they, they, every year they need to find a new home because they've outgrown their previous home and that home could be a, a hole in a hollow log, it could be the hole in the side of a building, uh, it could be a hole in, uh, if, if you're unlucky, a uh, hole in your, in your garage, which happened to me. And so a, a swarm of bees is, is going to need to find a new home to move into. And, and it, again, it sounds like a pretty simple decision, but it's actually, it's a life or death decision for, for honeybees. And so for the evolution of, of bees, the better decision that they can make when picking a new home, the better their survival of their, of their species. 
And so to solve this problem, what, what colonies of honeybees do is they form a hive mind or a, a swarm intelligence. And the first step is that they, they need to collect information about their world. And so they send out hundreds of scout bees out into the world to search 30 square miles to find potential sites, candidate sites that they can move into. And so that's data collection. And so they're out there you know, uh, sending hundreds of bees out into the world, searching for, for different potential homes. Then they bring that information back to the colony and, and now they have the difficult part of it. They need to make a decision. They need to pick the best possible site of dozens of possible sites that they've discovered. Now, again, this sounds simple, but honeybees are very discriminating house hunters. They, they need to find a new home that satisfies a whole bunch of competing constraints. That new home has to be large enough to store the honey they need for the winter. It needs to be ventilated well enough so they can keep it cool in the summer. It needs to be insulated well enough so it can stay warm on cold nights. It needs to be protected from the rain, but also near good sources of, uh, of water. And also, of course, it needs to be well located near good sources of pollen. And so there's a complex multivariable problem. This is a problem that a single honeybee with a brain smaller than a grain of sand could not possibly solve. In fact, a human that was looking at that data would, be, would find it very difficult to use a human brain to find the best possible solution to this multivariable optimization problem. Or, or, or a human that is faced with a, a, hum, a similar human challenge, like finding the perfect location for a new factory or the perfect features of a new product or the perfect uh, location to put a new store, uh, would be very difficult to find the, the perfect solution. And yet honeybees, uh, rigorous studies by biologists have shown that honeybees pick the best possible solution from all the available options about 80% 80, 80 of the time. And when they don't pick the best possible solution, they pick the next best possible solution. And so it's, it's remarkable they, that by working together as a swarm intelligence, they are enable, they're enabling themselves to make a decision that is optimized in a way that a human brain which is 85,000 times more powerful, would struggle to do. And so, and so how do they do this? Well, they form a real-time system where they can process the data together and converge together on the optimal solution. Now, they're honeybees, so how do they process the data? Well, nature came up with an amazing way. They do it by vibrating their bodies. And so biologists call this a waggle dance because to humans, when, when people first started looking into, into hives, they saw these bees uh, doing something that looked like they were dancing because they were vibrating their bodies. It looked like they were dancing, but really they were generating these, these vibrations, these signals that represent their support for the various home sites that were under consideration. And by having hundreds and hundreds of bees vibrating their bodies at the same time, they're basically engaging in this multi-directional tug of war. They're pushing and pulling on the decision exploring all the different options until they converge together in real time on the one solution that they can best agree upon. And it's almost always the optimal solution. And when it's not the optimal solution, it's the next best solution. So they're, so basically they're becoming, they're forming this real time system, this brain of brains 
that can converge together on an optimal solution and solve problems that they couldn't do on their own. And so, so that's a, you know, the, the most well-known example of what a swarm intelligence is, and we see it in honeybees, but we also see the same process happening in flocks of birds and schools of fish, which allow them to be smarter together than alone. So let's take that apart a little bit. And, and for the record, I raised honeybees. Uh, oh, wow. And so um, I can sing their virtues uh, and all these clever things that they, that they do. You know, they make this big beard outside the hive when it's hot and they all, you know, flap their wings and circulate air and they can communicate to each other where pollen is, you know, re- relative to like where the sun is in the sky and all these things. So, is your your thesis obviously do we understand do you believe the mechanism like you can observe it and say the bees go out to find a new home they have the old queen they all fly off they all come back they dance and then they pick the right one so is it that we know how that happens or do we know how that happens we do. And so biologists have done some amazing research. Uh, a, a lot of it's been done at uh, Cornell University. Um, and what they what they literally do is uh, they will watch uh, colonies of honeybees where they'll they'll paint little dots on the bees of different colors so they can they can actually keep track of which bee is which. And um, the, in this type of research actually started in the 1950s when when people were literally watching uh, bees that have been painted uh, different colors to see how they go out, what uh, what potential sites they visit, um, then they come back to the colony and they vibrate their bodies to, uh, and the magnitude of their vibrations indicate uh, how strong they support the different options that they've considered, and then other bees get influenced. Uh, and I, like I said, this first started by people watching bees, you know, by hand. Um, in, in more recent years, they've used you know vision systems and computers to watch the bees. But um, but biologists have done really remarkable research to understand in great detail how these decisions get made, and they get made as, as a system with feedback loops where um, they're they're basically negotiating in in real time. Uh, vibrating their bodies uh, and different factions form. And so a faction of bees will form vibrating in support of one option while another faction will form vibrating in support of another option. And and there'll be lots of different options with factions basically uh, growing and shrinking until they can converge on that one, that one solution that maximizes their, their collective support. And that solution is almost always the best possible solution. Let me ask the question this way. One one biological interpretation of that, uh, an evolutionary one would be through some freak chance occurrence, some one hive somewhere uh, started doing this thing and it worked. Uh, every other hive died out or commingled with this one, and they just lucked into that they're not really intelligent because they can't solve any other problem. If you ask, you know, they can't, I mean, they can solve different kinds of problems, but it isn't a versatile intelligence. It's, it's 
you know, I, I remember there was this Coke machine at school when I was, when I was young and it was really erratic, but if you put a quarter in and then you kind of hit the button a few times and then put your other quarter in and hit the button a few times, it would work better. Well, we just learned that trick. We didn't know anything about, we weren't intelligent. We just happened to stumble across the trick and the trick spread around and that was it. So I guess my question is, do we think, do you think that all of those bees are analogous to neurons in your brain? No one neuron knows anything. Collectively though, they create a consciousness. You, with all of these attributes, like a sense of humor and all of that, or, so that's one thing. And so I would ask you, is that collectiveness, does that collective consciousness, uh, is, it, is it aware? I mean, is it, is it, is it something that is emergent and is, is aware of the, the world and is making a decision? Or is it just some weird fluke of behavior and, and, and they aren't really thinking anything? Yeah, that's a great that's a great question, and it's um, it's it's something I think about a lot, uh, mostly from the perspective that to us humans, the you know the behavior of bees is pretty foreign, and so it's hard for us to to even notice, let alone appreciate um, the sophistication of of how bees are behaving in in their world, and so we we do know that they you know they solve this, you know, finding a new home problem by, by working together as a swarm intelligence. Um, there are actually lots of other problems they solve as well in terms of, you know, finding, you know, finding optimal places to, to direct uh, their scout bees for finding pollen um, or uh, when a whole swarm has to fly together to find a new location. So, so there's lots of things in the bees world that, they need to do intelligently um, to us humans. We, you know, it's easy for us to think that's not that's not uh, very exciting intelligence because we we interact in a pretty different world than than bees do. Um, the same thing happens when you look at ants or fish or birds. You know, they're solving uh, a range of complex problems by thinking together in systems, uh, but it's hard for us humans to think about that as a as something sophisticated and we could say oh well that's you know they're just solving this one simple problem it's it's a it's a trick or it's i don't i don't believe it is that way i believe that um that when they are forming this system they are creating an an emergent intelligence that has its own set of behaviors um and if we were bees, we would think, oh, that, that colony has a certain personality. It behaves a certain way. And that colony's behavior is different than another colony's behavior. Uh, to us, you know, all colonies seem the same, but I'm sure uh, to an alien, all humans would seem pretty similar. Uh, the subtle differences in our personality are very apparent to us, uh, but to an outsider, it, it, they, we humans might look like we are very predictable in how we how we solve problems or how we react to things. Uh, I think the same thing is, you know, is apparent in schools of fish uh, or in uh, in uh, colonies of, of ants. Uh, I believe that each colony or each school or each flock is its own emergent intelligence with its own personality. 
uh, and its own unique ability to solve problems. And, um, and it's very difficult for, for humans to appreciate, to appreciate that because we don't, we're not in tune with the subtleties of their worlds um, the way that they are. So to be clear, you, you say your feeling is that your 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 you suppose or your best guess is that they really are to one degree or another conscious. And if if the problem changed, if uh uh, there was a law that was passed, you know, a, a, in the whole world that um, all bee colonies, uh, more than eight feet off the ground, have to be destroyed. That you believe the bees would learn that, that over and over all these hives, I mean, all these people swarm, these, these uh, hives swarm, and any of them that go high up in like a tree on a big branch, they get destroyed, anything that's low that that system isn't some static, rigid thing, but that there's a consciousness in there that, that would say, oh, like literally say, ah, the, the problem has changed. No longer are high places any good. Right. So it's a great question. And it's, uh, you know, part of that comes to what, you know, what is the time constant for them being able to discover that? And the, and so that, you know, that's, yeah, that's the type of, my example was really not was right, really well, bad, but but the basic idea is can can that individual hive learn new behavior if the old behavior doesn't work or do you think it's hard coded in being a bee it's just their DNA yeah no, it's, I mean it's a really good question and um, and it'd be really interesting to see if there are if there are examples that that have specifically been studied by biologists uh, I, I think. For uh, for honeybees, at least the example of finding a new home, uh, they kind of have a they, they get a one shot at it right each each season, and if it doesn't work out, um, they end up they probably end up dying as a right. colony, and so it, it is a behavior that would get learned over time through through the evolution of uh, of their species. Uh, it makes me wonder if there are examples um, examples that are you know have a shorter time constant where uh, they you know where either bees would would learn as a system that um, the you know the pollen that they get from certain types of you know cultivated fields maybe are isn't as isn't as rich as as uh, as other kinds of natural settings. And do they learn over time to to direct uh, to direct their colony towards um, towards the the uh, the plants that you know ha have better pollen sources? I, I would suspect that that they do do that. So they're you know they what they're able to do as you know as a system is discover you know is compare uh, compare options and discover which which are working best for them and then learn over time uh, to guide in that direction. Um, it's, uh, you know, it's a really interesting, and I, I would bet that there probably are some examples that biologists have discovered. It's, it, you know, it's, it's very difficult research for biologists to do because we, they get um, stung a lot. <laughs> right. They get stung you a lot. Know, there is an old legend that if a beekeeper dies, somebody needs to go out 
and tell the hives to tell each of them that the beekeeper is dead. Um, <laughs> is, that a, is that a true legend? Or that's very true. No, I'm, I'm, I'm very serious. Like I said, I raised bees. I studied yeah. lore. And there's a lot of stuff like that. That uh, you know, th There are a lot of things like that that assume that the bees are more than the sum of their parts. So let's talk briefly about immersion. So I, I have a new book that comes out in like a week. And oh, wow. it's about consciousness and where it comes about, how it comes about in humans. And, um, and you know, everybody knows what consciousness is. It's the, the subjective experience of being yourself. It's, it's warmth. It's, it's how you feel temperature and all of that. But nobody, there isn't broad agreement on how it comes about. But nobody really knows why a bunch of neurons are able to perceive the world as opposed to just exist in it. Um, you know, it's a quantum phenomenon. It's a product of emergence. It's uh, consciousness is imbued in everything. It's a fundamental force of nature. There's, I, I found like eight different ways that you could kind of explain it. Um, and, and presumably you don't have to know how the bees do it. You just kind of want to copy their trick, but do you, do you have a sense as to how they do it other than, so you mentioned emergence. So there are two kinds of emergence. There's weak emergence where once you see what happens, you can kind of figure it all out, but there's no break in the laws of the universe that gets you this result. And then there's strong emergence. And some people think consciousness is the only kind of strong emergence. And it says, no matter what you know, you cannot ever draw a line between how a cell, a group of cells eventually becomes conscious. So if it's emergent, do you think it's a kind of strong emergence? And I only want to talk about this a little bit more because the, the, the meat of our conversation is now how do you take all of that and apply it to our world? Right. So, I mean, these are, these are great questions. And I, you know, from my perspective, um, I, I don't, I, as you said, nobody really knows the how, but we do know the, the what. And, and there's you know, one of the what's that we know is that a, a group of neurons, which are very, very simple on their own and, um, and, have, you know, it, it's, it's hard to even consider a single neuron to be intelligent on its own, uh, but it, it does have processing capability. Uh, if you take a, a large enough number of simple neurons and you connect them into a sophisticated system uh, and a system where they're very deeply connected, uh, and so in a, in a human brain, uh, we have about 85 billion of these neurons, and each one is connected to thousands of others. So there's over 100 trillion connections, so massively connected. Um, we do know that at that level of connectivity, human intelligence emerges. We know because we are the proof of that, but we have no idea exactly how or, or why that happens. We also know that, that much smaller groups of, uh, of neurons can um, can evolve into other, you know, have intelligence emerge in other organisms, organisms that don't have 85 billion neurons, but, um, but even a single honeybee. Uh, a single honeybee is intelligent. It's, it's, I would presume it's conscious. I would presume it's self-aware, and it has only one million neurons. 
And so we we do know that we we do know that this happens. Um, we also know that if we have and and you know one of the fundamental principles of these of these groups of neurons is that they are systems. They are real time systems with with feedback loops where uh, changes in one neuron will propagate through this system and affect lots of other neurons and and even feedback to the original neurons. So you have these systems with feedback loops. Um, and when we model those systems as, with feedback loops, we actually find that um, that swarms follow very similar principles. They're just it's following those similar principles just up a level where instead of connecting groups of neurons together into systems, you have groups of brains that are being connected together into systems with feedback loops where changes in a single organism uh, can propagate through the system and affect many other organisms and even propagate back to the original organism. And so uh, it's, again, it's this, it's a very similar pattern. It's just up one layer. And my presumption is that if you have enough organisms and they are connected uh, in a rich enough system, they will be able to behave as a unified entity. They'll be able to behave as a, as a single thinking machine. Uh, and it will have its own unique personality based on the makeup of the individuals who are participating. And, um, and it will have its own form of intelligence. Um, I, I see that process of, of emergence where intelligence is coming out of a system at the swarm level, at the hive mind level, really being analogous to uh, intelligence emerging at the, at the neuron level. Um, but we, we have much less experience in understanding uh, emergence of intelligence at the hive mind level because the biological examples are so foreign to us, uh, like bees and ants and, and fish. Um, that said, uh, at least from, from my experience, as we start connecting groups of, of people together, we start to see that these groups of people become smarter together than they would be alone. And they start to behave with a unique personality that's, that's different than um, that, that you couldn't assign to any one of the individuals. It's its own unique uh, group personality. Well, think about a riot. Um you know, where everybody just goes berserk and starts smashing everything up. Like, you know, their ball game, uh, their ball team won that night. And so this riot starts. Is that humans acting as a unit? They're all influencing each other, but what they do, taking on different personality aspects and doing some goal that no one of them could have done, smash up the city. Yeah, so a, um, you know, in some sense, you're referring to a, a mob, right? Right, right. And a mob is an example of a, you know, of a group that has an emergent behavior in it, and that emergent behavior is is negative, um, and that emergent behavior uh, is, you know, has a personality that's that's different than the individuals that how they would behave on their own. Um, uh, so a, a mob is a good example of of an emergent property 
of a group that's that's interacting, the the principles of a mob actually follow more uh, a different natural example of of a herd. And so, in nature, there are there are herds and there are swarms, and and a herd is a is a group where there tends to be um, leaders and followers. Where like and the thing about a herd is that if you have a say a herd of sheep and you spook one sheep uh, and it takes off running, all the other uh, sheep will uh, will sense that and take off running as well. And you have a, a single leader and a whole bunch of followers. And um, and the problem with a with a herd is that if a single leader that gets spooked jumps off a cliff, the the rest of the sheep could jump off the cliff. And and there actually are um, are documented examples of that happening in nature. Um, and so. Uh, herding or herd mentalities, which tend to emerge in uh, in prey animals, uh, because it's a defense mechanism, uh, is actually more similar to to this mob mentality, where a uh, where there's this emergence of a behavior that um, that kind of spirals out of control. Um, swarms in nature tend to behave differently, where in a in a honeybee swarm. Um, there are no leaders or followers, and um, and behaviors don't propagate through in this in in the same way. That everyone's all of the participants are interacting at the exact same time, and so it's more of a a, a thoughtful deliberation than a uh, a knee jerk reaction. So uh, it's in nature, it's. Um, it's interesting to see these different behaviors appear in other organisms, you know, in, in a prey organism where a herd could make bad decisions, but what's more important is they can make a knee jerk reaction and escape because they're prey. Um, you could end up with a, a mob mentality emerging uh, in a, in a swarm like bee swarms where what's, you know, what's more important is thoughtful deliberation um, the process is parallel rather than serial, and uh, and you end up with with a, a, a group that can make uh, I, I would say in, an enlightened decision that's better than the individuals would have made uh, because they have the luxury of of time to make that decision. Well, are, but one would not assume that even though the mob has this emergent. Uh, personality, for lack of a better word, nobody I, that I know of uh, would argue that that the mob has an emergent consciousness as well. Like that mob knows every bit of what it's doing, and it has a will, and it has a direction, and it has an intention. Uh, is that the case? And and second question: Are there naturally occurring swarm behaviors that humans exhibit? Right. So, so two really interesting questions. So it's, I mean, it's a great question of does, uh, does a mob have a consciousness? And I would say that it, um, it's not, it's not self-aware in the way we think of ourselves as being self-aware, um, partly because it doesn't have the the feedback loops as a system. I mean, it has localized feedback loops. If you're if you're in a mob, um, you are be, you know be, you're becoming influenced by that mob, and you're perceiving what's happening. And um, but um, and and it's probably changing your individual 
sense of um, of identity, uh, and and so uh, you know it starts to get into the philosophical idea of of what is consciousness, but um, you know as we've all experienced being in in groups, um, it's I, I think it's difficult to know or to assign the sense of the sense of self to this larger organism. That said, if you were, you know, if, if you were outside of the mob, you were, you're, you know, you're assigned with trying to control this mob, right? Um, you're, you're, uh, you're trying to corral this mob. Uh, you would see it's, if you could see its behavior from above, you would start to sense its personality. You would start to sense how it would react you know, you would try one thing and it would react a certain way and it would start to have these predictable behaviors. And you as, you know, if you could have this kind of God's eye view of this mob, you would probably start to perceive it as what biologists would call a superorganism, because it's behaving as a unit and it's behaving as a unit in predictable ways based on how you interact with it. This mob you know, if, if you were uh, putting up barriers, this this mob would behave in a certain way with with respect to those barriers, and this mob would probably learn over time. Uh, uh, and so, it you know, from the outside, it would it could be viewed as a superorganism that um, that reacts in in certain predictable ways, and then learns to start reacting in less predictable ways. Um, and each individual in that mob would probably uh, have its its sense of identity change as it's as it's part of that system. Um, but the one piece that gets philosophical is if we say, you know, does that does that system have its own you know sense of self? And um, and, and we you know we have no no reason to believe that it that it does, although it, it is behaving as a superorganism. And do naturally occurring swarm behaviors happen in in day to day life? Uh, and so you know, the thing about about human groups is that we um, we definitely are are forming uh, systems, uh, but they're not the same type of closed loop systems that that birds and bees and fish do. But basically, people people can't waggle dance. <laughs> Um, but we do, you know, we do work in, in groups. And so the types of swarm bait, swarm behaviors that we would see in bees, we don't see naturally occurring in people. Um, we do, you know, if we look at other types of behaviors, like there's a class of behaviors called flocking, which goes more to navigation, right? Um, a, you know, uh, schools of fish and, um, and flocks of birds can make decisions as a group, which we would call swarming, but they also can navigate um, as a group and we would call that flocking. And, and people can do that. You know, if you watch crowds of people, uh, they can navigate as a group and, and people um, are you know, well adapted to, you know, to walking in a crowd and following the people in front of you. And, and you might not even know where the group is going, but you, but you can behave as part of uh, as part of that type of group, and and we, you know, we see it in, you know, in human behaviors because people evolved from, uh, from other organisms that um, that have strong tribal behaviors or even herding behaviors, and so um, 
I think we do we do see you know group behaviors that that are similar to what we see in other organisms. But when we're thinking about the decision-making abilities of uh, of groups like like honeybees, we don't see it in nature um, mostly because people can't form those really cl- really tight feedback loops by waggle dancing, um, where large groups can all interact at the exact same time. Okay. Well, now that we've established that, how do if 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 the hive can behave a million times smarter than one member, how do we build a super intelligence of humans that's a million times what any one of us can do? How do you actually do that? Yeah, so uh, I mean, it, that's a uh, great open question and something that we've been researching for uh, for a number of years. And uh, and again, we always look to nature for inspiration, and we say, well, the one thing we know that that natural systems do is they um, they form these real-time systems with feedback loops where they can all behave at the exact same time and converge together on solutions. And so what, um, what we've been doing at Unanimous AI is, is enabling groups of people over the internet who could be, you know, they could be anywhere in the world, enabling them to interact as a unified system to answer questions. And once we enable groups of people to, to work as a unified system to answer questions, we can start to understand do they get smarter and how much smarter do they get? And um, what we found is that even relatively small groups, when they're enabled to work together as a system in real time, uh, can, can become statistically significantly smarter. Now, they're not a million times smarter. Uh, they're not a thousand times smarter, but they are significantly smarter. So I can give you, you know, an example. Um, we one of the things that we do at Unanimous AI is um, we have groups of people make make predictions and forecasts as a swarm, and we do that not because that's you know the only measure of intelligence, but it's a it's a verifiable measure of intelligence because because we can do a controlled experiment. We can have a group of people make a prediction on their own, and we can make that same allow that same group of people to make predictions by converging together as a system. And so uh, a study that we recently did uh, with Oxford University was to look at predicting soccer games um, in the English Premier League. And so we looked at you know, groups of sports fans to say, can they predict, um, we had them predict 50 soccer games over a period of five weeks. So we get a really good statistical sample. And we had that group of people uh, predict first as individuals. So, so they, um, they predicted these 50 games over five weeks by just giving us their individual predictions. And, and they also did it by working together as, uh, as a swarm where they would convert together, uh, basically uh, pushing and pulling on each other in, using a model that's very similar to, to honeybee swarms. And what we found was that these, these individuals, when they predicted on their own, were 55% accurate in predicting the outcome of the games as individuals. And, and 55% doesn't sound great, but, but in English, uh, English soccer uh, or football, as they would call it, um, there, the games can end in a win, a loss, or a tie. And since, because they allow ties, um, 55% accurate in predicting the outcome of the game is actually uh, pretty good. And so the individuals were 55% accurate on their own. These same exact people, when they were thinking together as a swarm, jumped all the way up to 72% accurate in, in 
predicting these games. So that was a 131% amplification of intelligence with a swarm of people that was only about 50 individuals. So 50 individuals forming a swarm um, using you know, the current technology that we have saw 131% amplification of intelligence. Um, that said, you know, we look at this technology space as, you know, as being in its infancy. And, um, and if very simple systems can achieve that level of amplification, um, and we look at, you know, how much amplification, you know, honeybees achieve, which, which we think is, you know, massive considering uh, they can solve very complicated problems, even though they have extremely simple brains, you know, it's our presumption that this technology space will, uh, will enable larger and larger human swarms and will enable uh, better and better interactions among, among the members and, um, and we'll be able to go, you know, from 131 percent you know, amplification of intelligence to to 200 to 500 percent to you know to thousands of times uh, of amplification of intelligence. It's um, it's a matter of uh, of developing more sophisticated systems and and larger systems and systems where um, the interaction among members is is more sophisticated. Well, the way you the way you describe it, with uh, like everybody kind of pushing and pulling and uh, all, of, it sounds like a Ouija board. Like everybody's hands on the marker, and the question comes out, and the 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 marker is kind of influenced to go to all these different places. So, what I'm sure it isn't a Ouija board, uh, but what is a human waggle dance? What are people doing in that when when they are coming together and? waggle dancing and convincing each other or not right so that's a great uh, that's a great question and um and so this the systems that we do build today uh do have a you know an aesthetic that makes people think of of a ouija board because you have a, a, a set of options that people are um are considering among and we have a an interface that's very intuitive to allow groups of people to to guide the system Towards various options, and um, and you know, you know, when bees make a decision among um, different potential home sites, they have a similar scenario where they're trying to decide among a, a large set of options. And what what biologists have found is that that bees can express their opinion by indicating which option they prefer most, and also indicating their their level of preference. And, um, and the systems are looking at, when these systems converge, they're looking at how, how the bees are expressing their, their direction and magnitude of their preference. And so what, what we created for humans is to allow people to do the same thing over the internet. And because we wanted to allow um, a very natural interface that, that anybody could interact with, we figured, well, the best way to do that is to use a standard you know, mouse or touch screen and so we currently allow people to control a little magnet on their screen that, that conveys both the direction and magnitude that they want the swarm to go. And so you can have, you know, 100 people each controlling a little magnet that's basically pulling on the, the swarm. And they're indicating by the position and orientation of their little magnet um, which, uh, which direction they want the swarm to go. But when the swarm starts going in a direction and they, and they realize it's not, it's not going to go to their favorite choice, uh, people start switching. And what happens is that you have a group of people who are 
who are basically pulling to some options and then switching to other options. And we have, uh, we have AI algorithms that are basically watching their behaviors and determining the levels of their levels of conviction. And so we're, we're combining all of their sentiments in, uh, in a way that accounts for differences in their levels of confidence or differences in their levels of conviction and guides the swarm uh, based on, on, um, on how, how, they are, uh, how they are expressing themselves. But because it's a feedback loop, everybody's adjusting to everybody else. And so it's a little bit hard to describe in words. Um, we have, you know, on our website, we have lots of uh, video examples of what these swarms look like, which is just uh, unanimous.ai. But the, you know, the, the key for us was to enable groups of people to interact in an intuitive way uh, to express their intent and, um, and react to everybody else in real time. And when, once they have those basic abilities, they're able to converge on answers to problems that maximize their collective confidence and their collective conviction in ways that, that allow them to basically have the, the best combination of their knowledge and wisdom and insight and intuition. Um, and again, we think this technology is in its infancy. And so while we're currently enabling groups of people to do this using, you know, standard computers with a, with a mouse or a touch screen, um, over time, the way groups of people will, will interact in these types of systems will include uh, voice and face recognition and, and ultimately um, brain interfaces because it will, it, the, 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 the better we enable people to, to express themselves and interact as a system, the more powerful these, um, these swarm intelligence uh, hive minds will become. What is your use case right now? Are, are you, as a company, are you making these tools and other people use them to solve whatever problems they want? So are you a platform provider or are you a product provider or are you going to actually use it yourself and, and uh, you know, just pick the perfecta each time at the horse race or whatever? <laughs> right. So, um, so we, we are a platform provider, but uh, right now the customers we have are, are large corporations that want to generate intelligence from groups and they want to basically amplify the intelligence of, of groups to answer questions that are relevant to their business. And so we have, uh, we basically have a service we call Swarm Insight where, um, where we generate insights for large, large companies uh, by, by basically bringing together a, a swarm intelligence on particular topics. And so our, our current customers are, are large companies like, like CNN, uh, Deloitte, eBay, Red Bull, Boeing. Uh, we've done projects for the U.S. Navy. Um, and so the, the type of project, if, you, if you're a, uh, a company that makes, uh, makes products and you want to understand how consumers will react to new features or new marketing messages, um, the way uh, the way companies do that right now is they you know they they do some polling, uh, they might do some focus groups. Uh, they're not uh, they tend not to be um, very satisfied with the type of insights they get from those mechanisms. Uh, what we can do is basically build an artificial expert where we can say take a group of 
of customers of a particular product and have them form this swarm intelligence and have that swarm intelligence uh, give give feedback about you know new marketing messages or new product features or even make predictions about how well those those changes to products will do in out there in uh, in the real world and so um, like we've we've built swarms that will uh, for example watch movie trailers and predict how well those movie trailers will will uh, will drive people into the theaters and um, and these swarms of people can make uh, more accurate predictions of movie box office than they could do uh, on their own. And, and, a, and a really fun example of this, uh, we, we did a few weeks ago when, maybe it was about a month ago when the Oscars uh, were happening. Uh, we were asked by a journalist to, to give them some forecasts for, uh, for the Academy Awards. And so we brought together a swarm of 50 people, just regular movie fans, and we had them as a swarm predict each of the each of the awards in the Oscars, and then we were able to compare how well did this intelligence of regular people brought together as a swarm do compared to the industry experts. And, uh, and what was remarkable is that the the swarm intelligence was ninety four percent accurate in predicting the Oscars, while the average professional movie critic was like 75% accurate. And this swarm of regular movie fans did better than the New York Times, than the LA Times, the Hollywood Reporter, Variety Magazine, uh, because, there, because there is so much power in enabling this, uh, this intelligence to emerge that's greater than any, any of the individual members. And, and the individual participants who we had in this swarm intelligence for predicting the Oscars, uh, as individuals, they, they actually didn't do that well. And in fact, we asked the participants, how many of you have actually seen all the movies? None of them had seen all the movies. In fact, most had seen like less than a third of the movies that were uh, up for Oscars. And so as individuals, they were, you know, they were not that smart. But when they were working together as a swarm intelligence, as a system, they were 94% accurate in predicting the Oscars. And so it's, it's that type of intelligence that... Um, that we're currently providing as a, you know, as a business. That said, um, as we look towards the future, we, we see that really any place where, um, where there would be value in, in taking a group of people and allowing them to make better decisions or, um, or better forecasts or even more creative um, uh, solutions to problems, we, we see that swarm intelligence can apply. And, um, and we're seeing interest from so many different industries. In fact, we have, uh, we have a project where right now we're doing with, uh, with Stanford Medical School, looking at building swarms of doctors to see if uh, a swarm of doctors can make more accurate diagnoses together than they could as, as individuals. And, um, and we suspect that they can, because it's, again, it's, you know, nature has shown over you know, millions of years that when organisms can work in systems, they can make significantly uh, better decisions than they can on their own. So how long have you been, how long have you had that system up and working? Uh, so we, uh, we, the first system that started building swarms of people uh, was in 2014. So we're going on so, four years. And, and presumably with the Oscars, you didn't ask the swarm 
who should win. You ask the swarm who will win, correct? That is that is correct, and that's um, that's always a really important distinction. Is that you have right. to ask the you have to ask the question that that you want the answer to. So, what would have happened if you uh, put up the last election cycle? So you put all of the Republicans that are running for president, all of the Democrats, and you said who should be president and who will be president. Two completely separate questions. What yeah, we actually, we actually, did you do that? We, we did do that. We did that during the Republican primaries. Um, and, um, and the Republican primaries were particularly interesting from a decision-making perspective because there were so many options, right? And um, the more options that you have, the worse traditional methods work uh, in, in forecasting and also in reaching decisions. And so uh, we, very early in the... Um, in the Republican primary process, we started to have swarms of people uh, predict who would be who would be the Republican nominee for president, and um, and the the predictions were coming out Donald Trump, and and they kept coming out Donald Trump uh, even when the polls were were saying that that likelihood was very very low, and so this was um, this was now you know a year and a half ago, and we actually started to wonder you know are, is there something wrong with our algorithms because we're getting we're getting forecasts that are so different than the polls uh, when we saw the, the group converging on the forecast of, of Donald Trump winning the nominee. Uh, now, once we got um, to, the, to the point where it was very close, at, at the end, we, we actually asked the question that, that you just said, which is, what if we asked the same group of people not to forecast who will be the nominee, but to converge on who should be the nominee? And we actually got two different answers. So the, swarm of, the swarms would say that um, Donald Trump will be the nominee. Uh, the swarms actually said that John Kasich should be the nominee. Um, and and uh, that was a really interesting outcome. And it, it kind of forecast the fact that the Republican Party um, was so divided. Um, and and that the because elections are, are done by polls, rather than swarms, uh, what an election will do is it will have the most popular choice emerge, but that's not necessarily the choice that would maximize the satisfaction of a population. And this is a great example of how the choice that emerged, uh, while it was the most popular choice uh, among Republicans, it wasn't necessarily the choice that had the group chose John Kasich, it, it might have had the greatest overall satisfaction. And I can give an example of, of this, um, of why this works this way with a much simpler question. And we do this with swarms all the time. Like a really simple question could be, where should we go for dinner, right? And I can give you know, five or six choices, where should we go for dinner? And I could have, and I could say, let's do it the way we, we elect people, let's just take a vote, right? And I could have, uh, one person vote for Italian food and one person vote for Mexican food and, and one person vote for Chinese food and two people vote for Indian food. We say, okay, well, two people voted for Indian food and, and there was only one vote for everything else. And so let's go to Indian food. That's the most popular choice. Now we have this presumption that that will maximize the satisfaction of the group, but, but there's no reason to believe that that will maximize the satisfaction of the group because the group could go to Indian food and the other three people might hate Indian food. You might go and interview those people when they when they're eating Indian food and find out that three of the five people are very unhappy because they they hate Indian food or maybe they had it for lunch. Now, if it was a swarm, you'd have a very different outcome. In a swarm, what would happen is 
one person starts pulling the swarm towards Italian food, and one person starts pulling the swarm towards Chinese food, and one person starts pulling the swarm towards Mexican food, and two people are pulling the swarm towards Indian food. And so the swarm starts moving to Indian food. But because it's a swarm with feedback loops, everybody reacts. And so somebody who's pulling to Chinese food will say, yeah, like I wanted Chinese food, but I, I just I had Indian food for lunch. And they'll switch, their, they'll, they'll switch the way they're pulling. And somebody else pulling for Italian food might say, oh, I just, I, I don't like Indian food. And they might switch. And if this was 100 people instead of five, and they're all switching, what happens is the swarm will start moving to Indian food for a second, and then it will change directions. And it will start moving, and it will basically find the path to the solution that the group can best agree upon. It will find the path to the solution that maximizes the collective conviction of this group. And so the swarm, instead of going to Indian food, it might go to uh, Italian food. And, and Italian food might not have been anybody's first choice. But if you interview that group when they ended up at Italian food, they will have significantly higher collective satisfaction than they would have had had they just done taken the simple vote and gone to Indian food. And so this idea of, um, you know, we as humans make decisions through polling. Um, and it's in, in a lot of ways, you know, far less evolved than the way that uh, birds and bees and fish make decisions, which is through swarming. And, um, and a, a swarm will actually find that decision that really is the thing that, um, that reflects the, the combined sentiment of the population. Whereas a poll is such an oversimplification, um, it's really just uh, you know, what happens to be the, the largest plurality, but very often that's very far from the answer that actually is the combined sentiment of a population. All right, well, let's leave it there. The company is unanimous.ai can be found at unanimous.ai. Lewis, it was a fascinating hour. Um, I, I wish you all the well, and it sounds like uh, that's, a, that's a, a fantastic piece of technology you've developed. So thanks for being on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was fun. If you enjoyed this episode of Voices in AI, please check out the other ones. And in addition, Byron Reese hosts another podcast about AI called the AI Minute. Every day, it's a minute or two of daily reflections about AI. It's available wherever you find your podcast of choice. And in addition, it's an Alexa skill. So it can be part of your flash briefing every day if you own an Alexa device.